So we're working through this uh, story of Queen Esther. Uh, that's a giveaway of what's coming up. Uh, the book of the Bible is called Esther, uh, but very often we would refer to her as S, Queen Esther, uh, because that's how it turns out. Uh, but we're still in chapter 1, and if you like, chapter 1 is really just, if you like, it's laying the scene. It's preparing the ground, but it's doing more than just creating the scene and preparing the ground. It's actually establishing certain stages and certain events which become critical for how the story unfolds. What's happened up to now uh, is that uh, we've been uh, presented with a scene. It's a scene which takes 180 days and then seven days, and it's a scene of incredible opulence in the um, kingdom of the Medes and the Persians under King Xerxes. So King Xerxes, in true ancient world uh, tradition, uh, decides to portray uh, the vast wealth of his kingdom. Uh, I guess all of every kingdom in different ways does this. We continue to do this today. Different nations decide that they will portray their greatness in different ways. Um, If you were able to watch the opening ceremony to the 2012 Olympics, uh, the reality is that that was Great Britain in its own way and for that moment in time on a world stage, if you like, declaring this is who we are. Uh, This is slightly different because what we actually see is Xerxes, rather than saying this is all about the nation, he's actually saying this is all about me. It's about what I've achieved. Now, he actually comes to the throne on the back of previous success, but he is an incredibly successful historical leader, one of the great leaders in world history in terms of pure human achievement. He was known as a great It's interesting that the Bible engages in the story of one of the greats in world history. It's not detached. It's not some philosophy that hangs in the air. It's not some set of ideas. It's actually engaging in the reality of a historical moment. And so we see King Xerxes um, displaying his grandeur, finishing it off with a party of seven days, when it concludes with him demanding that his wife comes in, as we looked at last week, demanding that his wife comes in with her beauty and probably her nakedness to be displayed in front of all of his drunken mates. That's the picture that we see portrayed. It's, if you like, it's the final uh, status symbol of King Xerxes. This is the final... uh, ownership that I have, this beautiful woman who I will now parade before you and declare to you she is mine. Do you get the story, the way the the narrator is unfolding it? Uh, Vashti responds by saying, you can forget it, well, whatever that would be in Medo-Persian language, but she says, I'm not coming in. That's where we pick up the story. So on the seventh day when the king was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him uh, to bring before him Queen Vashti. See what I did there? <laughs> uh, if you, you can mess out the names, it's really great. Uh, to bring, the, um, bring Queen Vashti before him and to display her. The response is no, and the response then 
as we see it unfold, is a series of quite remarkable steps. Queen Vashti says no. King Xerxes is furious, absolutely incensed. He has been made to look a fool in front of his uh, underlings. He is absolutely incensed. Uh, And we read in verse 13, it was customary for the king to consult experts in matter of law and justice. And so he consults experts in matter of law and justice and says... Think about this for a moment. Think about the way this is unfolding. His wife has refused to do something that he has demanded, and therefore he consults the experts in the law to decide what to do, which is hardly a framework for harmonious marital relationship, is it? That's what he does. He consults the experts in the law to determine what to do about his wife who wouldn't appear in front of all of his mates. Why? Why does he do that? Because at stake is more than in his mind, in his mind, what's at stake is more than his marriage. It's more than this marital relationship. What's at stake is his leadership, his authority is at stake. That's why it becomes a matter of law. What we then say is that we see um, a whole load of sycophantic uh, nobles who pander to the king and say to him, well, if this is the way that it's worked out, according to the law, verse 15, what must be done to Queen Vashti? She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Uh, And then the outcome of that is what we'll do is we will declare a law, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the people of all the provinces of King Xerxes. I mean, talk about ridiculous escalation. She has refused to go into a party, and the outcome is that a law written under the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed, is now going to be distributed to the whole of the kingdom because, and beyond every land that he owns because the whole of the kingdom is now destabilized according to these nobles. It's a ridiculous situation, isn't it? When you think about it. But I think it also speaks incredibly powerfully to our culture today in lots of ways. In lots of ways. First, and this is the main question for us today, what happens? What should we How should we respond when we live in a world which ends up with crazy laws being established? Because that is exactly what we see established. What do we do? What should be the response? Because after all, the way the story unfolds is that we see that those who are contained who are part of this story are not... This isn't just about Xerxes creating a crazy law. It's about God's people living under that crazy law as well. How do we respond? Secondly, 
it speaks incredibly powerfully today about how we need to be ruthlessly honest at times. We cannot afford to live in a world with sycophantic responses like these nobles, and yet we do. We live in a world where we have, well, let me just give you a few names. Britney Spears, Michael Jackson, Justin Bieber. What do they need? And what do they have? They have sycophantic lackeys who won't say no. Who who see that their own pockets are lined by being attached to these really successful rich people in exactly the same way as these eunuchs are. They're they're there, they're they're in the in-game. And then therefore when the king says, "What, what should I do about this? Oh, it's a terrible thing. It's about the whole of the kingdom. No, actually Xerxes, you just need to chill. You just need to calm the whole thing down and not be stupid. Because it is not that big, but he makes it that big and they encourage it to be that big. And if it happens on that scale, you know the reality is, and the challenge I think for us on an individual basis, because we're never going to be, most of us are not going to be in the position of being able to create laws and being able to have sort of... um, deciding that I'm going to take my monkey on a plane, for those of you who are Bieber fans, I'm going to take my monkey on a plane, and then the German authorities say, hang on a sec, it's going into, it's going into um, isolation, uh, and somebody needs to say, don't take your monkey on the plane. It's a stupid thing to do. But you know, the reality is that we live like that, don't we? We love to have people around us who confirm our thoughts rather than at times challenge us, rather than at times love us enough, care for us enough to say, no, stop, calm down, chill, think about it, just stop. Think about this. Be confronted with this perspective. You know, one of the things that we would say that the Bible does for us, what Jesus does for us at times, is he loves us enough to do just that. He loves us enough to not be a lackey to us, to not be a sycophantic supporter of our own desires and our own hearts. He loves us enough at times to say, stop, chill, calm down, stop doing that, stop behaving like an idiot, stop sinning, stop rebelling against me. Not because I'm really offended, well, he is offended by it, but not because he's putting himself on the same level as us and is offended by it, but rather because he sits above us and is offended by it and knows that our rebellion is not the best for us either. And he says, stop. And I guess part of this is for us to say, well, are we prepared to listen and change? Or do we drive on like a Xerxes? Are we determined to go with the ideas that make us the happiest and yet ultimately end up in our saddest moments? You know, one of the things that we see at the end of this chapter in verse 22 is that there is a final law that is drawn up 
and it is written with um, satirical, a, from a satirical perspective. Look at the way it unfolds. He, spent, he sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, and proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. I love the way the narrator has written that. It is just full of biting satire. You know, the, the way it unfolds, he finally writes a law that say, now, is that, a, is that an enforceable law? Is it a wise law? No, it's a stupid law. It's a ridiculous law. It's a law which is actually contrary to the whole of the flow of how God would have, build, have us build relationships together. And it is portrayed in the Bible in just that way. It's portrayed in a way that says, do you know what he did? He, he wrote it out and he sent it with dispatches and he had it translated into every language in the whole of his kingdom as if to say, as if satirically, for us to be confronted with something that should challenge us and say, what do we do? How do we respond? There can be crazy laws in the world that we live in. In fact, just this past week, remembering uh, Emily Davison, 4th of June, uh, she jumped out in front of King George V's horse, Anma, uh, and was killed died in hospital a few days later uh, as she as a suffragette was fighting for the right the just right to have the vote for women you know in lots of ways Emily Davison is not is not disconnected from this moment in history this establishment of this kind of crazy relationship construction that talks about power and control and subjugation. And the Bible portrays it in that way. It's, now, I think from a woman's perspective, you should be encouraged to see that the Bible portrays it from that perspective, that it puts a satirical slant on that kind of response and that kind of relationship. But again, I ask, well, what do we do? What do we do? Because we're not living in the time of Esther. But what do we do when we live in a world today where crazy laws are written? What does... As we will see, Esther and Mordecai, who are God's people in that place, what do they do? I think even now, we can begin to lay some foundations to respond to just that question. We've got three things that I want to say. The first thing is this. We need to remember as Christians today, if, you're, if you, maybe you're looking on and maybe you're thinking... Well, how do Christians respond? How should Christians respond? Here's my perspective. I think it's got warrant here. I believe it has. The first is that we, we, we recognize that we're not living in Jerusalem. We're living in Susa. 
Do you remember when we first opened this up? There is a contrast that is being portrayed in the Bible by the very position of this story. The way the story unfolds, it is contrasting those who are still living in the empire of the Medes and the Persians and those in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah who have returned to Jerusalem. In a sense, the way the Bible story unfolds is it's saying there are two cities that are being portrayed and some people who are believers in God are living in the city that is opposed to God and some are living in the city which is established for God, Jerusalem. Uh, what when we're in Susa, the reality is that we should not expect, we should not expect that the laws are going to be established as they would be in a land which is, in a nation which is. Jerusalem. You say, well, hang on a sec, are we, how do we deal with that? I think one way that we can deal with it is we can go straight to Jesus. Listen to what Jesus says. He's, he's talked so many times about coming to establish a kingdom. Isn't that interesting? He talks now about kingdom. All the way through the Old Testament, we've had kingdoms being described, kingdoms being established, and now Jesus says, I've come to establish a kingdom. Jesus did not come to establish the kingdom of Great Britain. He did not come to establish the kingdom of America. He did not come to establish the kingdom of Germany or France or Southeast, uh, um, South Korea or any uh, country that we can name. He came to establish a kingdom of his people. A kingdom which is spiritual in dynamic and a kingdom which covers the whole of the globe. It's a kingdom which is a single kingdom, and yet it exists in many, many different kingdoms. That's the remarkable power of the kingdom that Jesus came to establish. But look at how he says he relates to the kingdom of Rome. Jesus said, John chapter 18, verse 36, he says this, My kingdom is not of this world. It's not, a, it's not a kingdom that you can kind of contain within political, geographical boundaries. It's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. Isn't that remarkable what Jesus says? It is breathtaking. He's saying this, if my kingdom was a kingdom which was to do about the physical world that we live in, when the Jewish leaders arrested me, or will arrest me, my, lead, my followers, if it was about this world, they would fight. But it's not about this world. So they don't fight. But now... My kingdom is from another place. There is a spiritual dimension. Jesus, is Jesus saying, because I've come to an establish a kingdom which is not of this world, I can just kind of give up. I, I, you know, if bad things happen, I've just got to just accept it. 
Or is there something more powerful, more incredible about his statement? And I would say absolutely way more powerful. He's saying this, because my kingdom, which I have come to establish, is not of this world, when things happen, like me being arrested, which appears to be a bad thing, those who are in my kingdom can know that it's actually not as bad as it looks. In other words, it is God's grace. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Do I believe that when really crazy laws are established in the land that I live in, that in some way, because God's kingdom is above and beyond all of those powers, all of those authorities, that I can rest easy? I can I need to know that I can rest easy when crazy things are happening. When destructive, seemingly destructive things are happening because I have absolute confidence that the grace of God working out in this world is above and beyond those temporary things that seem to be so opposed to the kingdom of God. Because that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, my kingdom is actually advanced by my arrest. But if my kingdom was of this world, my kingdom members, my followers, would fight to release me. But my kingdom is advanced by the things that seem to be bad. We need to remember that law doesn't change the hearts of men and women. Law does not change the hearts of men and women. The power of God And the mercy of God and the work of the Holy Spirit changes the hearts of men and women. And therefore, I can live in Susa. I can live in a kingdom and I can live in a place which is opposed to God. And I can live with confidence, knowing that I'm not in a battle which is kind of ebbing and flowing. And maybe Jesus is losing a bit here. and, And maybe he's gaining a little bit here. I can live with confidence and say, I know that he is winning all the time. Because his kingdom is not of this world. Secondly, we need to understand that the fight, the fight is going to be bitter. Now, this might not sound particularly palatable in encouraging people to be followers of Jesus. But this story here is connected to another story in the book of Daniel. Because it's in the same kingdom. During the same kingdom development, Daniel's at the beginning and the book of Esther is towards the end of the kingdom. Daniel is taken from Jerusalem and is taken into captivity in Babylon under the under the Babylonians, but remains when the Medes and the Persians take over from the Babylonian Empire. So King Nebuchadnezzar takes him in, and uh, finally uh, Darius, uh, he finally, at the end, he he takes him as the Medo-Persian ruler. He's now under Persian control. We read in Daniel chapter 6, another crazy law has been made. Daniel is living in a world of crazy laws. There has been a law that says nobody can give homage to anybody other than King Darius. 
And Daniel, a believer in the living God, in his own commitment, in his own time, not hiding away, but not making a huge thing, just gets on with his life and continues to pray to God. And the lackeys of King Darius go to, go to him and say, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty. I love the way the narrator adds that as well. Just a little bit of a kind of sucky up kind of your majesty. Or to the degree, or the, to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed for he was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. In other words, Daniel was in that complex situation. He was a follower of God in a strange land. And he might have been disobeying in that sense because he was committed to, to God. He was committed to his life of commitment to him. But at the same time, he had been faithful to King Darius and he'd been a great servant of King Darius because he loved to serve the king, Darius, because it was a representation of how he served his God. And when Darius found this out, he was devastated because here's this great servant who is now going to have to be killed. Then the men went out as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, here we are again, can't be repealed, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. In other words, we've boxed you off. We've got you to make a law and now you can't change it and Daniel's a goner. And he was thrown into the lion's den and we know that he was actually unharmed and came out the following morning. What a remarkable story and what a remarkable picture of a man who is not living in Jerusalem, he's living in a nation which is opposed to God. Now Jesus, want, or the New Testament wants to remind us that the kingdom of God means that every single one of us in every nation, in every part of the world, is going to be in a kingdom which is going to be opposed by those around. Ephesians makes that really clear. It says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, we have a spiritual battle that is going on. And no matter what country we live in, no matter where we are, holiness towards God, faithfulness towards God is going to be offensive to the world that we live in. We don't need to go around and make it offensive. There are times when it will clash. It will clash. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a great German theologian who was hung by the Nazis for his faithfulness and struggle for those who were oppressed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer makes this very point. He says... 
in, in seeking justice, in seeking the protection of the weak and the vulnerable as believers in Jesus should be doing, no matter where we are, we will be opposed. Why will we be opposed? Because the world is driven not by the grace and the mercy of God, but by the self-interest of humanity. In other words, the, the, the law of Xerxes might not be as crassly repeated worldwide, but it is repeated worldwide again and again and again in the self-serving commitment of humanity against God. And therefore, if we are being faithful to God, we will at times be persecuted. You might be listening thinking, I'm not a believer in Jesus, and that has just made me decide I'm not bothered. I don't want to do it. I'm not going to get involved in something that's a whole load of hassle. Unless what we are committed to is right and true and good and humble and broken and not arrogant and filled with love, just like Jesus we need to understand that it will cost at times to be faithful. Persecution is normal. And we need to accept that we will not create a utopia. Does that mean that we just kind of live in this, just make the best of it? No, absolutely not. Because the third perspective is this. We hope in God and not in the law. We hope in God. Don't abandon hope because we think we can never change anything. Have a bigger idea of what hope is. Have a greater idea of what hope is. One of the ways that this story is written, the way it's portrayed, the way it's described as this crazy law where he's writing a law to say that every woman should be ordered by the emperor to be... um, in a kind of controlling, horrible, offensive way, submissive and controlled by her husband. And the law is written in every language and sent out to every hamlet in the whole of the empire. It's written for us to say, what if we live with a king and a kingdom who makes unjust laws? Maybe our hope, what maybe our real desire as we see that portrayed before us is to hope that it might be possible to live in a kingdom where the king makes good laws. Where the good law, where a good king, where a good leader is displayed before us. And that's precisely what the Bible describes to us. Our hope is in a king. Our hope is in a king. If you've noticed any of what we've been singing this afternoon, we've been singing about the kingship of God in Jesus. A just king who makes good laws for the sake of his people. To create environments of support and love and care and compassion and goodness and mercy and justice. 
And you know, when we sing about the idea that one day there's going to be more people than we can possibly count singing praise to that Jesus in a kingdom which will never end, which will be ruled with that kind of mercy and justice and compassion and goodness. That's the kingdom that we're headed for. That king, the kind of king who sits on his throne and sees, listen to the the comparison, this king, Xerxes, sits on his throne, sees rebellion, if you want to term it as that, in his mind it's rebellion. He wants a bad thing, but he sees rebellion. So he writes a law that separates forever Vashti. That's what happens. She gets separated from out. She's banished from the king's presence forever. And then we've got this king, Jesus. And he's already written a law which banishes every single person from his presence. Not because he's a vindictive king, but precisely because he establishes a kingdom of purity and justice and kindness and mercy. And none of us can live up to the standards of that kingdom. None of us are good enough to live in that kingdom. But that's the kingdom that he's established. And what does he look out and see? He looks out and he sees rebels. Just like, in a way, Vashti. He looks out and he sees rebels. And what is his response? His response is to say, rather than condemning those rebels and banishing them from my presence forever, forever, I will break down. I will break in. I will go down. I will immerse myself in that rebellion. I will make myself submissive to that rebellion and I will buy. I will redeem. I will purchase a kingdom. A kingdom of people who I will die for. Isn't that amazing? What a contrast between Xerxes, this despotic king who sees rebellion and just crushes it to the love and compassion of a king who sees rebellion and goes and sorts it and dies for the rebels and breaks in and gives himself So that we don't have to be banished. So that we might enter into his presence. Vashti never again, never again saw the face of King Xerxes. Because a bad law was created which she rebelled against. And yet the contrast is, we have never seen the face of Jesus because we have rebelled against his good law, might be redeemed so that we see him again. What an incredible... That is hope. That kind of kingdom means that Bonhoeffer is absolutely right. We might get persecuted. 
We might get persecuted. We might find that our commitment to Jesus is an offense to people around us. But it's worth it. Because the kingdom is a kingdom of purity and goodness. He said this. Sometime not long before he died. The believer is neither a pessimist nor an optimist. To be either is illusory, kind of, you know, creating illusions. The believer sees reality not in a certain light, but as it is. In other words, he is able to see events as they unfold. He sees laws being created. He sees opposition, but he is absolutely committed to know that I am following a greater king. And he believes only in God's power towards those who love him. It's great news. It is a king worth serving. 